Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillah. Wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man wala. Allahumma iftah alayna futuhan harifina biku barikana wa baynana ya rabbil alameen. I wanted to make one clarification quickly about last week that my, my wife brought to my attention was that um, I probably shouldn't have been saying about Imam Ghazali's Ihya that we should take it with a grain of salt but rather to say that um, there are things in the Ihya that are not always easily understood for average people and that when one uh, gains kind of more perspective and, and knowledge and understanding then things that he said are understood in, in appropriately whereas sometimes when people come across them initially they can be put off by them uh, so it would have been better to just uh, do kind of like an elevation of his status rather than something that could be perceived as otherwise so may Allah forgive us inshallah so we're going to work we're continuing on verse 23 um, we were at the end of verse 23. We're going to use it to speak a little bit about Tawbah, repentance, and then we'll go on to um, 24. And after, if, if depending on how things progress, we may actually finish the section on the nefs today, on the soul. Uh, if we do so, uh, then we, we have the great, great honor of starting the next section that comes after that next week, which is the section on Madhi Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam which is on the actual praising of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam so we'll see how today progresses so verse 23 she means empty out the tears from an eye that has stuffed itself with forbidden sights. We spent some time on that the concept of the eye and what the eye is to be used for and the, the issue of the, uh, what we look at and how that affects our hearts. And then the second half of it is hold hard to a diet of penitence. Hold hard to a diet of penitence. So what this is referring to, nedam, is uh, regret. And regret is basically um, in in the state. There's a hadith of the Prophet sallallahu that says "Tawba or and or tawba You know, basically, or tawbatun. I can't remember exactly right now. Man, forgive me. That was last week. Um, but basically, it says that regret is tawba. So, the cornerstone of asking Allah's forgiveness, the cornerstone of having repentance is to have regret. And if there's no regret, there's no true repentance. And if there's no regret, you're not going to actually repent in the first place. So this is the cornerstone of it. So when he says, nedimi, you know, a diet of penitence, then this is referring to the importance of having a regular relationship with Tawbah. Um, the Prophet ﷺ, of course, sets the example in this, in that he himself was known to ask Allah's forgiveness up to 70, up to 100 times in a gathering. He was known to be regular 
in saying astaghfirullah, astaghfirullah, this was something that he would regularly do. Um, but tawbah is, subhanAllah, so, so important when we take a step back and look at it, kind of philosophically, because it gives us one of the keys to understanding life that's very, very important. And that key is essentially that we as human beings are incomplete uh, in, in the sense that we are not perfect and we are prone to error and we will make mistakes and it is not possible for us to be perfect. In fact, you know, the only thing that's absolutely perfect is Allah. He is a salam. You know, he is the and, and that is the reality that you get from Tawbah. So why Tawbah is a regular part of the life of a Muslim is because it's basically telling you that you will make mistakes and you will turn to the one who is perfect. And you will ask his forgiveness. And you will do that regularly. And as soon as you think that you don't need to do that regularly, you have basically failed because you've ascribed yourself with perfection. Because you can't ascribe yourself with perfection, that means that you have to have imperfections. If it means you're going to have imperfections, then you have to ask Allah's forgiveness. And so there's a, the, the, the really key behind it is this understanding of reality. Uh, we see that many, many times what we ask of our children, what we ask of our communities, of our peers, of our colleagues, is that they are perfect. And of course that's a failing model. Uh, it's a failing model to expect perfection of people. Indeed, there are at the same time certain uh, mistakes or, or errors that people can fall into that are not easily forgiven. And um, maybe something will be have, to, have to be rectified. You know, it's, and, and not all situations are the same. Someone may be a regular um, person in the community and steal some money, for example. And when they steal that money, then obviously that's a major crime and there's issues involved in it and so on. But you can hope that they will be forgiven and you can try to seek their best, their well-being and so on and life will go on. Um, but if someone is in a position, for example, of leadership, they're in a position of authority where they're responsible for that wealth now, or they're in a position where they're looked upon in, the, in this way, if they steal, it's different. This is a much more serious issue. Like, for example, say you have the imam of the masjid, and I'm sure, I don't have a particular case study in mind, but I'm sure there's no shortage of them. But let's say that you have an imam of a masjid who happens to steal money from the masjid. Now, it's not enough for that person to come afterwards and be like, you know what, I just, I asked Allah's forg forgiveness, and I have a clean slate, and I should be able to start over again. It's not enough at that point. Because the person has betrayed the public trust, as well as their responsibility to Allah, they betrayed the public trust, so there have to be some consequences to that. So, I'm not, what I'm trying to get at is that we shouldn't use this also to say that because nobody's perfect, then we should just forgive everybody of everything all the time as if there's no like consequences to human existence um, or, or human relationships. But that it is important to know that we will make mistakes, and we ask Allah's forgiveness for those mistakes. And one of the du'as that's in some of the morning and evening adhkar uh, is to, add, to seek Allah's forgiveness uh, for that which one knows and that which one does not know. So there's an idea that there are things that I've done wrong that I know about, and there's things that I've done wrong that I don't even realize that I did wrong. And so, Ya Allah, forgive me for those things. Uh, so tawbah here is then a very, very important concept. Tawbah in its uh, meaning as well, tawbah is not 
self-abuse. Toba is not um, like hating oneself, looking down on oneself, having a very negative perspective. Toba is just turning back. And whoever turns back to Allah, Allah turns back to them. It's very simple. It's, it's, not, uh, it's, it's not some sort of... Uh, because you see this as well with a very kind of authoritarian uh, family settings at times that we uh, have a tendency to really beat ourselves up. Um, so Tawbah is, you know, you ask Allah's forgiveness, you take it seriously, but you sincerely turn back to Allah and you ask for His forgiveness. The conditions are, number one, stopping the sin. So if someone wants to ask Allah's forgiveness for a sin, they need to stop doing the sin. You know, Tawbah is not a game, as with all things with Allah, they're not games. You know, sometimes people get in the habit of, of playing games with other people. You know, they're always hustling somebody, doing this, or doing this. You can't hustle Allah. Allah knows whether or not you're sincere. Allah knows whether or not you're stopping the sin. Allah knows whether or not you intend to go back to it. Allah knows all of the details of the whole situation. So number one is to stop the sin. Number two is to regret the thing that the person did. To have nadam, to have regret. Uh, so you know, you, there's an acknowledgement that you have overstepped the boundaries that Allah has laid down. And then number three is to intend not to return to it. To intend not to return to it. And there's a fourth condition for tawbah if it relates to other people's rights. So uh, another important concept in Islam is that there are things that are the rights of Allah and there are things that are the rights of people. And uh, contrary to, you know, you, you would normally think about it like there's the rights of Allah and there's the rights of people and you would, your mind would immediately assume that the rights of Allah are the ones that are kind of like I don't want to misstate it, but it, it turns out that the rights of the people are the one that's harder to deal with in some ways. Because when you're dealing with Allah, and you overstep a right of Allah, then you can ask Allah for His forgiveness, and He has promised forgiveness for those who ask His forgiveness. But when you're dealing with the rights of people, you have to return their right. Um, and this is where it gets a little bit more tricky. Uh, there are some cases where that might not, so like for example, let's say with backbiting and things like that, that backbiting is to take the right of someone else. To speak ill of them is to take their right. And so if you realize that you have backbit someone else and you, you want to repent for it, you have to go to them and tell them, you know what, uh, I really need to talk to you and then take out your list and say, I said this about you on this day and this about you on this day and this about you on this day and this about you on this day. That could be very... Um, difficult situation to deal with but one has to consider where the greater harm will lie so it's not in all cases that you have to tell people everything that you said about them for example but you could for example ask for forgiveness and then speak well of them so maybe you have the opportunity to be in a similar gathering where you had previously spoken ill of them and then you speak well of them or so on there's different ways to deal with that yes Restoring the honor of the person that was spoken about to those who were spoken to. Mm -hmm. You remember who it is, just go to, you don't go back to the person that you about, but you just restore their honor with specific audience that it was done. Yes, exactly. Okay, perfect. Um, the second thing about Toba is that Toba can be a source of great and unexpected things. So, again, we don't look at Toba as something that's so negative. Toba can actually be uh, the source of many great and beautiful and wonderful things. 
And if you remember when we spoke about this, the Burda itself and the, the class of literature surrounding the Burda, then the Burda itself and its, the class of this literature actually was born out of this incident with the companion of the Prophet ﷺ, where he came to the Prophet and he was asking for forgiveness. Remember? And he was making tawbah for what he had done before he became a Muslim. So we talked about Ka'b ibn Zuhair and how he used to be a very um, prominent poet and so on and so forth. And he wrote a lot of poetry against the Prophet ﷺ. And then he came to him and he said, if someone comes and he disguised himself, he said, if someone comes and they accept Islam, is everything gone before them? And he said, you know, he affirmed that. And then they had that whole conversation. And then he accepted Islam and he told him this poem, which is the Burda of Ka'b ibn Zuhair. Right? So the whole genre was actually born out of an act of, forgive, of, of repentance, of seeking repentance. So repentance can actually be the source of really great and amazing things. Uh, it's, it's very, very important to realize that because it's a very serious thing. You know, when someone is going about their life and they come to a point where they say, you know what, I want to turn my life around. That's a very, very serious intention. To make that kind of choice is a, very, is a big deal. And so great things can come out of it. And one of the great uh, stories of Tawbah in the life of the Prophet ﷺ is that of Ka'b ibn Malik and the Battle of Tabuk. Um, it's a very, very long hadith, but it's a very, very important hadith and there's a lot to be learned from it. So we're going to go through it, inshallah, to, to remind ourselves. The... Uh, the, tra- the tradition starts off by it being narrated by Abdullah ibn Ka'b ibn Malik. So this was, and he's referred to in, in, the, in, in the kind of the senate of the hadith as uh, being from the, one of the sons of Ka'b who used to guide him around when he became blind. So what I think is interesting about that is that you wouldn't mention it in the senate of the hadith unless it was something that was uh, worthy of being mentioned. So there's this idea that this son of his had special honor because when his father attained to old age and he lost his vision, he was the son who used to guide him around. And that's a very honorable thing to do. And so he deserves special mention of that quality. It also is important in this case because it's a very long tradition and it's indicative of the closeness of the son to the father that he knows all of this detail about the incident that happened. Right, and the incident that happened, I'm going to have to summarize some of it, but basically, um, maybe I shouldn't summarize it, there's so many lessons. I'm not going to. So, Abdullah bin Ka'b bin Malik, one of Ka'b's sons who guided him when he was blind, said, I heard Ka'b bin Malik relate his account of when he stayed behind the Messenger of Allah on the expedition of Tabuk. So this was a battle later in the life of the Prophet, peace be upon him. And Kab said, I did not stay, Kab said, the one who stayed behind, I did not stay behind the Messenger of Allah them on any other expedition he made at all except for Tabuk, although I did not go to Badr, and no one censored me for staying behind because at that time they went out to meet the caravan and they didn't know that they were going to go to war. So it wasn't that everyone was called to go out for Badr, so it happened, and the people who were there got the honor of being Badriyun and others uh, maybe missed that battle. So he said, I was present with him on the night of Aqaba when he made the, pa- the pact of Islam 
for the people with the with the Ansar, and then the, which led to the Hijrah afterwards. And he said, I would not exchange that for having been present at Badr, even though Badr is more known to the people, which is an interesting little point. So basically say, I was at this time when they made the pact uh, to support the Prophet and then that led to the Hijrah of Medi- to Medina. And he said, I was there, but I wasn't there at Badr, but I prefer the one that I was at, even though Badr is more known to people. There's different ways you could look at that, but probably one of them is that it's just kind of an acceptance of one's Qadr, that this is what he was he was supposed to witness and he witnessed that um, but also that it was a very very I mean that was a big deal too to pave the way for the hijrah to Medina was a big deal and for him to witness that was a very very big deal and so even if it's not as well known it was still important and this is a very 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 important concept that the famousness of something is not an indication of its worth and, uh, and it's not an indication of fam- famousness is not really an indication of, of much at all <laughs> yeah. other than the pe- especially in the modern world other than that people you know I mean half the time the fame in the modern world is bought anyways it's not even it's not even organically achieved but nonetheless uh, so he says he, he preferred that part of my account of when I stayed behind uh, on the expedition of Tabuk was that I had never been either stronger or wealthier than when I stayed behind on this expedition. By Allah, before it I had never had two riding animals as I did have when that expedition took place. And I, and, and when the Prophet intended to go out, he would always indicate uh, another destination until the expedition actually left. And the Prophet ﷺ made this one at a time of intense heat and there was a long journey in prospect on a waterless desert and a great enemy to face. So he made everything clear to the people so that they could prepare properly. And the Muslims, they went out and they were numerous. Um, and so Kaab is basically saying in the beginning that he had no excuse. Saying, I didn't have any excuse. This, this, this thing that I missed, I didn't have any excuse for missing it. And... He says, you know, people, because the numbers were so large, you could, you know, some people thought they could miss it and nobody would notice them. You know, it's like, to give a very immediate example, the care banquet is extremely large. So it's very possible that you could go to the care banquet and not see people that were there. And it's also possible that you could not go and people wouldn't even know that you weren't there. (laughs) So, So this is a very immediate example. But of course, much different. Um, the so he said there's so many people that went to this battle, and basically he kept putting it off. So one of the issues here is the harms of procrastination. So he kept putting it off. He kept saying, you know, I have a few more days. I have a little bit more time. Even when the army left, he said, you know, I can still get ready and go tomorrow, and I'll catch up to them. And then eventually it was like they're too far now. I can't go. So this procrastination can be very dangerous and then the army went out and the Prophet was sitting with the, the army and he said what happened to Ka'b you know this is an amazing thing the, the Prophet used to remember his companions you know, he used to like he used to have concern for them when they weren't around if they didn't show up he would wonder what happened to them where did they go we start asking you know, so even with this huge army there, he asked, like, what happened to Ka'b? So one person jumped in, and their name is not given in the tradition, 
they described as a man from Beni Salima. And the person said, uh, <laughs> O Messenger of Allah, he has been held back by his two cloaks and his self-conceit. <laughs> so basically, one person took it upon himself to say, O Messenger of Allah, basically, he had a lot of money this year, and so he was held back because of it. And then it's, it's said that Mu'adh ibn Jabal, he jumped in and he said, what an evil thing to say, we only know good of him. So he kind of like put this to a stop. And then the Prophet ﷺ didn't respond. When he said, we only know good of him, he just stayed silent. And it was like that, uh, and, and things passed, and eventually the, the battle passed, and they came back to the masjid uh, in Medina. And when they would come back to the masjid in Medina, um, the Prophet ﷺ would pray to Raqqa'ah, you know, as he comes back into the city. And then he would sit... And he would take kind of like the excuses of the people that didn't go to battle and the renewal of their Pledge of Allegiance. So he would, you know, they would come and they would say, you know, we didn't go for this or that reason. And they would make their excuses and they would swear to them and he would just let it, he would say, okay, he would accept what they declared and take their allegiance, ask their forgiveness. Um, and then Cobb says, when I greeted him, he smiled the smile of someone who was angry. Very interesting, you know, observation. He says, when I greeted him, he smiled the smile of someone who was angry. And then he said, come here. And I walked up and I sat down in front of him and he said to me, what kept you back? Did you not have a mount? You know, like basically, he's trying to give him an excuse, but there's no excuse, right? So he said, O Messenger of Allah, if I were sitting with anyone else in the world apart from you, I would think that I could escape his anger by making some excuse. I am gifted in argumentation, but by Allah, I know that if I were to tell you a false story today, which might satisfy you with regard to me, Allah would soon make you angry with me. If I tell you the truth, you will be angry with me, but I hope for a good outcome from Allah, the mighty and exalted. By Allah, I did not have any excuse. By Allah, I have never been stronger nor wealthier than when I remained behind. This is a very, very strong statement. Right? I could make an excuse. I don't have an excuse. Even if you're angry with me, in the end, it's still between me and Allah, and I don't have an excuse. Right? The Prophet ﷺ told him, "This one has spoken the truth. Get up until Allah decides about you." Okay. So he told him to go. And. Again, some people from Beni Salima came and they followed him and they told him, By Allah, we have not known you to commit a wrong before this. Didn't you have any excuse to say to the Prophet So these people were kind of giving him a hard time, right? And he said, By Allah, you know, they were reproaching me, they were reproaching me. And then he started to ask, you know, did anyone else face the same thing? It turned out there were two other people that were in the same situation, but they were older. Uh, so the Prophet ﷺ forbade people to speak to the three of them. And people completely ignored them. So they're in Medina, they're living their life, nobody will speak to them. They go to the marketplace, nobody talks to them. They go to the masjid, nobody talks to them. It's complete boycott until the situation is decided. So they put it with Allah. So until, this, until there's something that indicates uh, what is these people's fate, it stays that way. And so he says, I, I know I'm skipping around, he says, I would, I would go, he says, I used to go out and I would attend the prayer with the Muslims and I would walk in the markets and nobody would speak to me. 
I went to the Messenger of Allah وسلم, and I greeted him while he was in his assembly after the prayer and I would say to myself, did he move his lips to return the greeting or not? You know, so he'd go and he'd say salam and look, like, did his lips move or not? Um, when the harshness got too hard, I climbed onto the wall of, 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 a, of one of the, you know, a relative or something. I asked a cousin, one of his dearest people to him, I greeted him. I said, don't you know... He did not return the greeting. He said, I ask you by Allah, don't you know that I love Allah and His Messenger? And this cousin of his said he was silent. And he said it again. And he was silent again. He said it again. He said, Allah and His Messenger know best. You know, so it was a very, very tense uh, situation. Even so much so that he was, t- he was tried with the great fitna, uh, which was that someone was walking in the market in Medina, and uh, they had brought some food to sell in the market and they started to ask for Ka'b ibn Malik. So they said, who's Ka'b ibn Malik? Who's this guy? And they pointed to him. And he, he came with a letter from the king of Ghassan. You know, he brought him a, a letter from a king. And he said, I was a scribe, so I read it. And it said, following on from that, it has reached us, you know, Emma Ba'd, it has reached us that your companion has been harsh to you, referring to the Prophet uh, this is, of course, the king who's not a Muslim is saying this. Allah has not put you in a place to be humiliated and deprived. Join us and we will console you. Okay. So this is a major test now he's been given. Like you can leave even this place that you're from. And then he said to himself, this is also part of the test. And he took it to the oven and he burned the letter. And then 40 of the 50 days had passed and things were continuing and so on. I'll skip some. And then on the 50th day, he says, I prayed Fajr on top of one of the houses. And when I was sitting in the grip of this state which Allah had mentioned in the verse, you know, he's very, very constrained. As if even though the earth is all in front of you, it feels like all of it is closed around you. It's a, it's, it's a spiritual state. You know, the whole world is open, but it feels like the whole world is closed. So he says that I was sitting there and Allah mentioned this about us and so on. And then I heard someone shouting at the top of their voice from the top of a mountain. They said, Ka'b ibn Malik, we have good news for you. And I fell down in prostration and I knew that relief had come. And the Messenger of Allah had announced to the people uh, after Fajr prayer that Allah had accepted their repentance. And the people came to bring us good news. And they took it to the other companions as well. And the person who was yelling from the mountain reached him even faster than someone who was trying to come by horse. And when they came and they gave him the good news, he, he took off like his outer garment and he gave him the outer garment as like a token of appreciation in that moment of great joy. And he says then afterwards he realized, you know, that he didn't have any other clothes. <laughs> so he borrowed some clothes from, from someone else. And he went to the Messenger of Allah in the masjid. And crowds of people were congratulating him and so on. They're saying, enjoy the turning of Allah towards you. Until he entered the mosque. He said these companions were sitting around the Prophet ﷺ and none of them got up except for Talha ibn Ubaidullah. He said he's the only one who got up and he congratulated me. And then Kaab said, I will never forget him for what he did on that day. You know, on that, that moment he gave him this congratulations and it, it meant so much to him. He says, when I greeted the Messenger of Allah ﷺ, his face was shining with joy. And he told me, rejoice with the best day that has come to you since your mother bore you. And Kaab said, is it from you? I mean, look at subhanAllah, these people. Kaab said, is it from you, O Messenger of Allah, or is it from Allah? I mean, look at this question. <laughs> After all of this time, it uh, says, is it from you, O Messenger of Allah, or is it from Allah? 
And he said, it is from Allah. And then the Prophet ﷺ was so happy, he says, and when he was happy like this, his face, his face would shine like, someone said it earlier, his face would shine like the moon. Someone said, when you say the Messenger of Allah ﷺ, the moon comes to mind. So we used to recognize that in him. And I sat down in front of him, and I said, O oh, Messenger of Allah, part of my repentance is that I divest my property, I give it in sadaqah. Prophet told him, keep some of your property. Uh, and then he told him, the Almighty has saved me on account of my being truthful. So part of my repentance is that I will never speak anything but the truth from here on. And then, you know, he, he says that he was very, um, he tried very hard to do this. And then these verses were revealed in Surah At-Tawbah about this forgiveness, basically from 117 to 120. Uh, and then at the end of the verses it says, uh, to have taqwa wa kunu and to be with those who are truthful. And this is a reference of, of, of his truthfulness there. Um, so he says, Kaab says, By Allah, after Allah guided me to Islam, Allah did not bestow me with any blessing greater than my truthfulness to the Messenger of Allah on that day. And the fact that I did not lie to him and get destroyed as those who were destroyed, as those who lied did. So it's interesting, you know. He says, like, the best thing that happened to me after my Islam was telling the truth on that day. Even though that was a really hard truth to say. That was a, I mean, it has a truth that had so much consequence for him. But that truth was better to me. He says, this is the best thing that happened to me other than the, when Allah guided me to Islam in the first place. So this is the story of Ka'ab uh, ibn Malik, and one of the great and like very, very famous stories of Tawbah uh, in the life of the Prophet So this kind of sums up uh, the 23rd verse, except for one last point. One last point is that Ibn al-Qayyim mentions um, some interesting things about Tawbah in his book, Madarij al-Sadiqeen and Yerhamakullah. Madarij al-Sadiqeen is basically a commentary on the spiritual states of the traveler to Allah and all of them are so all of them go back to the Fatiha And more particularly all of them go back to this verse in the Fatiha So he talks about Tawbah as, uh, And how it connects to Surah Al-Fatiha This is very interesting So Surah uh, Tawbah connects to Surah Al-Fatiha Because Tawbah is a returning back to Allah Which requires guidance It, requir- it requires Hidayah so it connects then to اَهْدِنَا الصِّرَاطَ الْمُسْتَقِيمِ It connects to guide us to the straight path. And the precondition of being guided to the straight path, what is it that allows the person to attain to this hidayah? Is that which comes right before it. You know, when someone is consistent in their worship of Allah, when they're consistent in their seeking the aid and assistance of Allah, then that will result in their hidayah. It results in their very practical guidance. And guidance has levels. You know, one part of guidance is just you believe in Allah and His Messenger, right? This is one part of the guidance uh, in the most base level. But if that was the only level of guidance, then we wouldn't be making this du'a every single day, right? In every single prayer, we wouldn't be reading the Fatiha if that was all it was. But rather than every single day as we live our lives with everything that we do, we're always trying to go down this middle route. And that middle route can be very, very difficult at times. Uh, and one of the things that Imam al-Ghazali says about this is that 
all of the capacities in the human being, they have a middle point and they have different ways that they can swing. And depending on which situation you're in, it may or may not be the right place for that emotion. And that, that subtlety is so difficult that you have to say اِهْدِنَ السِّرَاطَ الْمُسْتَقِيمِ so many times in a day. So I'll give you an example. So you have the, uh, the capacity of... Um, you have the capacity of strength. Okay? You have the capacity of strength. If strength is used to an extreme, it leads to oppression. If strength is not used at all, it leads to cowardice. So you have two different swings. And if it's used in the right place, then it's courage. And so it can swing into cowardice. It can swing the other way into oppression. Or it can land right where it's supposed to land at the particular time and place, which makes it then courage. And so that swinging of emotions and capacities that human beings have is also one of the secrets why we have to say this dua so much. Because really it's, it's not easy to walk that middle line. Middle line is not easy to walk. So we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to guide us to that in all of our affairs, inshallah. Ameen. Verse 24. Verse 24 says, Which means disobey the ego and the devil, dispute with them, suspect them both even when they offer you true counsel. So this is related to what we've been talking about up to this point. That the ego and shaitan are two different things that are going to um, encourage you towards bad. So you argue with them, you dispute with them, you go against them, and you suspect them even if they're, even if they're telling you the truth. You know, they've established that they're not always working in your benefit. So if that's the case, even when they tell you the truth, you suspect them a little bit. One of the, one of the commentaries that, that the ego is mentioned before the shaitan in this verse. Khalif al-nafsa was shaitan. The ego is mentioned before shaitan. And the reason for that is because the, the, the ego is internal to the self and it's often you know, misunderstood to actually be working in your favor when, it's actually, when sometimes it's working against you, so it's a lot more subtle, so you have to pay more attention to it. So the ego then is mentioned first uh, in the verse. And some has been said that to be divorced from one's ego is the greatest blessing of Islam. Because it is the greatest veil between the person and their Lord. Uh, and I'll, I'll say some more of this before we move on. Some of the shiuch said when they were asked what Islam is, they, they said the conquering of the ego with the sword of disobedience. Not disobedience to Allah, obviously, but disobedience to the ego. That you conquer the, you conquer the nafs by disobeying the nafs. Conquer it by disobeying it. And the third was Sahin ibn Abdullah. He said, Allah has not worshipped with anything like disobeying the ego and base desires. So the idea here, I was looking for it, subhanAllah, I can't remember right now where I, I had seen it before, but Tiba'a uh, al-Hawa is the, the source of kulli ma'asi. You know, following one's desires is the source of all sin, it's all problems. Every mukhalifat al-Hawa this whole section, if you were to talk about the nafs, how to deal with the nafs and the ego and so on, Mukhalafat al is a very foundational principle that you go against your nafs. 
You go against your nafs. And it's really scary, subhanAllah. It's really, really scary. Because when you're caught in the middle of like a trench where you're in a battle with your ego and your ego is trying to convince you of something that's actually wrong, when you're in the trench, it's very hard to distinguish what's actually going on. And then you may come out of it afterwards and you're like, was I even thinking about that? Like, was this even a question? This was so clear that this is not, that was not the right thing to do, you know? And it's just, it's just battling you. You're battling, battling. And when you're in it, it's so hard to see it. So you're fighting, like fighting the, the ego is very, very important. The nafs is very, very important. Part of the difficulty of this is that it basically goes against everything that we're told in popular culture. Wasn't that, the, was that the mall that we saw? What was it? The, the, the mall that we passed by had an advertisement like about the nafs. Oh, yeah, there's a big billboard that says instant gratification, next yeah. exit. <laughs> instant gratification, next exit. <laughs> like, subhanAllah. <laughs> How much more clear can you get as to this point? Instant gratification, next exit. Here, you want to fulfill your nefs? Here's your nefs right here. Just exit. We have everything that you need. It was Fox Hills Mall, I think. Uh, Fox Hills, yeah. It's just like, here's your nefs. It wants to be fed. Here, go right here. Uh, food, clothes, carnal desires, whatever you want, everything is right here. So this nefs issue is like, and we talked about it a lot last week in the case of food. That's one place to practice it. But there's other places where one can do so as well. How about you had? Yeah, I have a question on, um, on that. How, how do you distinguish the thoughts coming from you know, the nefs or the shaitan and one that's yours? Entirely, one that you think, because I can't remember where I heard this from, but they say sometimes the whispers of Shaitan may actually think it's 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 yours. You know what I'm saying? So how does one distinguish the two? How do you know one is actually leading you? And that, I mean that's exactly what you're trying to say. But right. I'm just kind of confused on the solution to to that. How do you actually know it? Yeah, that's um. It's actually a very difficult question, and one that I don't know that I can so clearly answer. Um, but uh, are you, is it on this? Yeah. Okay. Um, Go ahead, and then. From the school, actually, what they tell us is the logical suggestions. That's from your nafs, because your nafs knows you better than the shaitan knows, pushes your buttons. And the stuff the shaitan, whereas he just throws like things like randomly at you or whatever, just whatever's gonna stick is gonna stick. He's like desperate. I mean, but your nafs is very logical and says because he knows, for example, you might like chocolate ice cream with with chocolate chips and peanuts or whatever. He's gonna say this is yours because he knows you. This is your desire. You want it. Yeah. Whereas the shaitan is just coming at you like from everywhere. So he's more mm-hmm. logical and desperate, whereas your nafs is very logical and methodical because it knows how to convince you. But your nafs could also lead you astray. But you said which one? You want to know the suggestions? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But your nafs could lead you astray as well. Yes, Shaykh. Um, uh, Shaykh Hamza talks about it a little bit in purification of the heart. That the nafs is more like obsessive, you know, in, the, in its whispers, and the shaitan is more like what, what was mentioned in terms of like this random thought, and if it sticks, it sticks. But it's not, it's not obsessive in the same way. Mm. Okay, some see and then what comes in? And just to add to that, the way that I have learned it was that your, the, the things that come to you and your thoughts that are repetitive yeah. are going to be coming from your nafs. 
And the example that um, I was taught as far as shaitan would be like, if if you're never, if you know you're never going to go towards pork, for example, he's not going to come to you uh, to, to try to tempt you to eat pork because you know you, that's something you would just never go near. But maybe it's something else that you're not as, you know, so it's like that. But the ones that are repetitive, that's you. Mm-hmm. you that's like habits, right? That's why it's a break the habit or the spiritual path. Mm-hmm. That's breaking the ego, not necessarily the mm-hmm. Yes, sister. I have something. I have something. I have something. I Coming here, it was not easy coming here for me. I have to struggle getting up, doing everything I do. It's a struggle. It's a struggle, everything I do. So I went to this restroom, the shaitan came. I, I, I kept the soap, you know, when the sister came out to wash I kept it with me. And I hear the sister in the other restroom, like, yeah, Allah, now she's going to go without washing her hand, you know, I'm thinking, <laughs> and then I throw it from under the, you know, under the, because I don't want to carry that burden and guilt sure. on me, so it's a struggle. Yes, good, alhamdulillah, I think those are helpful answers, um, and, and I think then what comes on top of that then is so you may be able to distinguish, this is from the nafs, this is from shaitan, this is this, this is that. So then in the end, you have to be able to make a principled decision as to what you, where you're trying to go. So where am I trying to go anyways? Is, is, what, is, is the realm that I'm in right now, is it halal or not? So one of the four, foremost questions, but then also what is best for me to do? And you kind of then just keep building uh, on that struggle. So, so they give you these, the shaitan and the nafs, they give you these insinuations and you fight them. Uh, verse 25 continues that. says, وَلَا تُتِعْ مَنْهُمَا خَصْمًا وَلَا حَكَمًا فَأَنْتَ تَعْرِفُ كَيْدًا خَصْمٍ حَكَمِي It says, of the two of them, obey neither as plaintiff or arbiter. Well, you know the plaintiffs and the arbiters ploy. So basically saying that like you're in this, is this, this court battle. <laughs> And there's two sides in the court battle, and it doesn't matter which side they take or what the, what their argument is. Just don't listen to them because all they're doing is they're trying to win against you. And so whatever the situation is, just know that it's against you, no matter what they're saying, and and go against it. Um, and and so just to be aware of that, so it kind of builds on uh, the one before. Then twenty six says. أَسْتَغْفِرُ اللَّهَ مِنْ قَوْلٍ بِذَا عَمَلٍ لَقَدْ نَسَبْتُ بِهِ نَسْلًا لِذِي عُقْمِ Which means I ask Allah's pardon for words not followed by deeds. For by them did I attribute progeny to a sterile man. So he says that I ask Allah's forgiveness for words not followed by deeds. Because when I do that, I've given progeny to a sterile man. So basically what is he saying? Saying that it's a bad place to be in, to be saying things and not doing them. And if I'm saying things and I'm not doing them, then it's like if you have someone who can't have children, and you're saying that you're saying that these are his children. You know, like it's just it doesn't work. 
It's, it's not the way that it's supposed to be. And then the verse after it uh, continues that. Which means I didn't I commend to goodness to you while I was not doing it myself. And being crooked of what use is my command to be straight. You know, so it builds then those two go together. That I seek Allah's forgiveness for something that I said that I didn't do. And I told you to do these things, but I myself didn't do them. Uh, so what's what's the point of what I said in the first place? And of course, there's verses in the Quran that deal with this as well. لِمَا تَقُولُونَ مَا لَا تَفْعَلُونَ You know, what, oh, you believe? Why are you saying uh, that which you do not do? Uh, and this is a big thing to Allah. It's very hated to Allah to say that which you do not do. And there's a hadith that's very, very severe uh, on this issue which is of a person who was in the hellfire and they were going around this pole with their intestines connected to it they're going around the pole like a donkey in a mill and they told him aren't you the one who used to tell us to do so and so who used to tell us to do so and so and he said yes I was the one who used to tell you that but I myself wasn't doing it so there's this concept of like not putting oneself in that position to, to say things and to encourage people to do things that they themselves are not trying uh, to do or they themselves are not doing um, and, and so obviously it's a very serious thing now one of the questions that comes up in this regard is does that mean that I can only so how does one deal with this because we said in the beginning that you're not going to be perfect right you're not going to be perfect. There's going to be things that you're struggling with. There's going to be things, that problems that a person has. Does that mean that I can't tell anyone to do anything good because I myself am not perfect? No. Uh, it just means that if we're going to remind others, we shouldn't be pretentious about the way that we remind others. And it also means that if we're going to remind others, we ourselves should at least be consciously trying to do those things that we're telling them to do. Even if... Um, we may not be um, fully practicing in them or struggling with any sort of element of that. Uh, part of this also is to remind ourselves as well the importance of learning versus uh, like the difference between ta'lim and wa'af. So there's a difference between learning and preaching. And so preaching is like you get up and you're just dropping all these things. You should do this and that and this. All of it's telling people what to do, basically. And then there's teaching. Teaching is like the Prophet ﷺ said this, and this is what so-and-so said, and this is what so-and-so said, and I'm just telling you what these people said, what we're supposed to be following. I'm not making any claim to my own perfection or action. I'm not making any claim to, like, making it seem as if you're bad if you know I'm judging you if you don't do it because mashallah I'm doing so many great things and all of this kind of stuff no there's a difference and even there's indication that amongst the sahaba they understood this difference which is there's a hadith of Ibn Mas'ud that someone came to him it's not a hadith I guess well I guess it is a hadith it's marfu'a uh, hukman they came to him and they said to him you know you, we wish that you would give us more tadkir. Tadkir is like an actual reminder, you know. Uh, 
and he says, uh, because you only give us you only give us these reminders once a week on Thursdays. So he said, this is what I saw from the Prophet who didn't want to overdo these these harsh like preaching reminders because then people will get bored of them. Uh, so this is all that I do. I don't do more than that, right? Uh, but it's interesting that because I just came across this, I was reading it in the book that Ali gave me. May Allah bless him and his family. I mean, um, and I noticed because I've always read it in English, and then I noticed in Arabic that it uses tadkir and uses wa'ath, which is different than teaching. So people used to teach, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they were preaching. And this is, an, I think, a very very important distinction. The whole uh, interaction is different, you know. Um, so. One can, can teach and then struggle to do certain things. However, uh, I would say that if, you know, there's a certain level of struggle. Uh, in general, being in a position of teaching is not, uh, the, you know, you wish that Allah will bring benefit from something that you do, but it's not really, who actually wants to preach? Like, nobody actually wants to do that. Who actually wants to teach? Like, I wish... There were, I wish our teachers were here and they could sit at this table and teach and we can sit where you are. I guess not. Uh, you don't actually want to be in that position because you don't want to have that responsibility. But, you know, there's this, the important thing I think to take away from this, there's a couple. One of them is that we shouldn't use this concept to create an environment that makes it impossible to encourage one another to good. If we came across this before on a different uh, angle, but the, this shouldn't be a means of creating uh, the, an impossibility of encouraging one another to good. Encouraging one another to good should still be possible. It should just not be so um, judgmental and kind of destructive and, and, and filled with so many negative things. It should just be a very camaraderie type deal. You know, like we're all in this together, and this is the way that the Prophet ﷺ lived, and this is what the Quran tells us, and we're going to do it, inshallah, and you know, we'll get there. Um, but but not to, to make it so that we're completely paralyzed, because that's also a trick of the shaitan. If everyone's completely paralyzed from mentioning or doing any good, then what happens to the community? <laughs> Nobody can have any sort of encouragement towards good, then everything is going the other way, because we can't live without this encouragement. So, you know, these things are, are, are very important there. Also, one of the benefits of learning is that it provides a reminder without having to give a reminder. Right? So, rather than having... And that's good for everyone. Rather than making it so that the imam or the, the, the sheikh or the female, whoever it might be, has to give a lecture specifically on the issue in order to get you to change something, just let them read, read the hadith, give a small commentary, very clean, clear, then do it. And then it helps everyone. <laughs> so, and also being in an environment of learning makes it so that that's not as necessary because the environment does that itself. So if you, this is why I said it's very... I, I personally think it's important to have a regular relationship with some book of tazkiyah at all times. That could be the Qur'an. But there should be some book that's reminding you of tazkiyah at all times that you're reading. Because every day you need the new reminder. So why they said, like, you can study fiqh for the rest of your life and it'll get boring very quickly. But you could talk about sincerity for the rest of your life and it shouldn't get boring. Because every single day it's a new struggle. 
this, the, the concept renews itself every single day. So this is also part of that. And then the last verse in the section is وَلَا تَزَوَّدْتُ قَبْلَ الْمَوْتِ نَافِلَةً وَلَمْ أُصَلِّ سِوَى فَضْلٍ وَلَمْ أَسُمِي Which means, and no optional devotions have I accumulated ready for my demise, nor have I fasted, nor prayed uh, more than the minimum required. So this is the ending of the section. So there's this, you know, back and forth with the nafs, you fight the nafs and so on. And, uh, you know, and then after, look at the humility of, of Imam al-Busiri, right? Like after he's saying all these things about the nafs, then he's saying, I ask Allah's forgiveness for saying these things and so on and so forth. And, you know, who am I that I didn't give extra deeds, I didn't fast extra fast or make extra prayers. I haven't prepared actually for my death. And of course this is an exaggeration, he has. But that's the state that, uh, that, that, that comes from people of true knowledge. Uh, and, and I'm going to end on that point because I think that that's extremely, extremely important. And we've talked about before, to this, to this meaning that the path towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is to fulfill one's obligations and then to do extra deeds. You fulfill the obligations, it's the best way to come towards Allah. You do the extra deeds and that increases one in their love of Allah and Allah's love for them, which is even more important than your love for Allah. More important than our love for Allah is actually Allah's love for us. If Allah loves us, we're going to love Allah because it will be there. But what's, what you see from this end of the section and then we get to the next section when we get into on praising the Prophet وسلم, I mean it just this section in the poem is unbelievable. It's so beautiful. Like so many of the famous lines from the poem are in this one section. So it starts off, he says, ظَلَمْتُ سُنَّ مَنْ أَحْيَا الظَّلَامَ إِلَىٰ أَنَشْتَكَتْ قَدَمَاهُ الدُّرَّ مِنْ وَرَمِي You know, I, I betrayed the sunnah of the one who gave, gave, gave life to the night until his ankles became swollen from prayer. You know, that's just such a powerful sentence. So we'll get into that. But you see the humility of Busiri is the ending point. See the humility of Al-Musiri. I mean, subhanAllah, one of the things you really see from people who have a, a combination of outward and inward knowledge is that they are truly humble. And I think it's the most incredible thing, subhanAllah. Like when you think about everything in life, every other area in life, when people accomplish more, they become more arrogant. <laughs> but when it comes to like this area, the deeper people get, the more humble they get. And it's like the most amazing thing. You can sit with someone who's accomplished so much. They've written so many things. They're actually a good person. They live lives that are righteous and caring and generous and all of this kind of stuff. And they like, they're miskin. They're fucking. They're, they're, you know, like, absolute humility. Absolute humility. Uh, like one of the, the scholars who passed away recently, you know, uh, he he was. There's a story about him that someone thought, you know, the people, Westerners in particular, because they didn't know when they would come into the masjid and he would serve everyone water. They thought he was the water guy in the masjid, like he was just some poor guy who serves water in the masjid. But he was the sheikh, like he he was the sheikh of the entire thing. You know, the master of qiraat, the master of calligraphy, the master of poetry, the master of all of these spiritual disciplines, and he's the one they come in the masjid, he's serving them water. 
know, can I get you some water filling up the cup as an old man? Because it's the job. So there's this there's this humility to the way of actually following the Prophet that we ask him to bless us with inshallah. Ameen. Uh,